Greetings. Greetings. Carousel. Last day. Last day, Red 5. You better run, Logan. You better run. Berkeley Grox is coming to get you. Listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, obesity, pathogens, and fiber optics. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Lee Silver, who will talk about scientific ethics. We'll also find out what the panda's thumb is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grokks Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of the people. I I feel the power. I'm not sure if I've been officially designated as the voice of the people, but neither is Rush Limbaugh, so... (laughs) Answer the question. So do you work harder when you listen to heavy metal, Charles? Uh, I'm feeling a little at odds. I thought we, we start off with the animal fact of the week here. In fact, did you know that termites work twice as hard when they listen to heavy metal? Oh, my God, it is the animal fact of the week. I thought we were going to go without it. And we still don't have the theme song for that. But I think it, there should be elephants in it. Okay. <laughs> All right, termites. So they work harder, they eat faster when they listen to the heavy metal. Is it just the bass that keeps them going? Or? No one knows for sure, but that's what's been observed. And I guess one of the interesting things we probably don't want termites to do. Okay, is it the hard rocking heavy metal or is it when the heavy metal band gets soft and does the power ballad? No, it's the hard stuff. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Bring them on. But speaking of working out, see, I have all this planned. It's amazing. I thought we just had to show up and have a few drinks, start talking about science. So a new study shows that people who spend more time at the gym actually do not lose more weight. They don't have a lower probability of being overweight. So this was carried out with students, kids in a gym class, and what they've shown is that by increasing the time they have for physical education, they've shown that the amount of obesity has not decreased at all. But are they getting the same amount of a workout? All the students engaged in an equal amount of activity during that period. So the original hypothesis was they would be getting more of a workout, and as a result, they should be burning off more calories. But a secondary and just as equal but opposite effect is that as a result, after they work out, they're less likely to engage engaging light exercise you know, mm. on their way home because they're already too tired. And so overall, they're not burning off any extra calories. In fact, they're going to be more lazy when they get home. Maybe it just shows that there are flaws in the physical education that have to be worked out at a more fundamental level than just simply adding time to your uh, activities. Right. Most people, they don't like to exercise on a set schedule oftentimes. This work carried out at Cornell University and it's in the journal Education Next. Oh, 
All right. Well, this is almost going to seem like it's planned out because this also has to do with obesity, <laughs> in particularly diabetes. The muscular correlation, I suppose, in here. <laughs> well, the incidence of type two diabetes、mm-hmm. has risen as the level of obesity has gone up in the United States.、Mm-hmm. And the question is, how are the two linked? More sugar, right? What happens in type two diabetes is the receptors for insulin become less sensitive. Okay. It's called insulin insensitivity. So, but the question is, why do these receptors become less sensitive? Right. Did they become overstimulated previously? That's a good question. There was research published about two years ago where cell biologist Umut Ozgan, Gonkun Hatamizgil, and their colleagues at the Harvard School of Public Health, they found that the obesity leads to ER stress, endoplasmic reticulum stress. I like my endoplasmic reticulum. That's the party center of the cell. <laughs> you can't beat the Golgi apparatus. <laughs> Nothing can actually beat the mitochondria. It's got its own.、House. It's got its own DNA. <laughs> Here's the thing. So in the ER, that's where proteins begin to fold. Those bound also for the membrane. And new research has shown insulin actually increases the activity of an enzyme called JNK, which can modify one of the cell's insulin receptors, and as a result, cause it to fold improperly and become less sensitive.、Mm-hmm. So as a result, then they've been trying to block the particular activity here. And what they've done is they've done this in a few animals, where they've injected a drug that promotes protein folding in the ER, and shown that they can recover these animals from their insensitivity type two diabetes.、Mm-hmm. Perhaps targeting this one mechanism might be a good way of going about treating this disease. So simply reducing your sugar intake or your carbohydrate intake will not do the same thing. Then apparently, I, I think、uh, it might be some sort of a systemic、uh, effect once you develop the type two diabetes. I guess the best thing is not to take it up then. <laughs> yes, give it up by not taking it up. <laughs> Just say no to sugar. <laughs> That's a little hard.、I'm、so sweet. But yeah, move on to wasabi peanuts or something. Anyway, <laughs> I snort that all the time. <laughs> so very good stuff. Take a look. It was a recent edition of Science. So Charles, how's your EFO? It's okay. It's actually okay for the Declaration of Independence as well. <laughs>、uh, what is the EFO? It's called the、uh, efficient fiber optics, and it's a new way of channeling light to your building. So instead of you know piping electricity and having a light bulb at your end, you'd have a, electric, a centralized electric light source, and then using fiber optic cables to channel light around your building. And it turns out to be a lot more efficient and safer than conventional light bulbs. Why is this good for the Declaration of Independence? So one of the nice things about it is it filters out the UV light. And so all you get is the visible light、mm. because UV tends to degrade everything inside eventually. So you want the declaration to survive as long as possible. What's Independence done for me lately? <laughs> <laughs> I need somebody telling me what to do. <laughs> Maybe I need to get married. <laughs> Watch TV. <laughs> okay. I learned everything from TV. I learned everything from people who've learned everything from TV. Even better. This was actually technology that's been in development since the late '80s, but for the first time, it's become commercially available and robust enough that firms like Whole Foods and Albertsons are testing it out, and they've actually had pretty good success in their energy savings.、Uh, the payback's about two years, so after installing it, your money comes back in terms of the electricity savings you gain from it. Cool. I guess one of the other cool advantages is that they're interested in using it for swimming pool lights, so you no longer have to worry about electric components in your water that might cause someone to get electrocuted.、Right. <laughs> This is made by a company called Solon,、uh, based in Ohio, and there's a very nice article in News.com. All right. Well, maybe those fiber optic cables can scare away the leptospirosis. Sounds like nasty stuff. It's apparently the most common disease that nobody's ever heard of. 
So what is it? The bacteria just just in the air here and there, but usually it doesn't do anything un until one of them mutates. It does quite a bit even when it's not mutated. It's just not very common in the U.S. Uh -huh. um, certainly found in a lot of places like the Peruvian Amazon, for example. Oh. But the strange thing about this bug is that people are more likely to die from the disease if they catch it in an urban area uh -huh. than if they catch it in a rural area. It's very uh, odd. So that's the mystery. And just like Penn and Teller, how did they do it? <laughs> yeah, how did they do it? I think it's a fake truck. <laughs> What they did here is a group of researchers at the University of California at San Diego, led by Joe Vinetz, they studied strains of the bacteria from urban areas and rural areas. Uh, they found two things. First of all, there's a lot more of the bacteria in urban areas. Okay. And the ones that are in urban areas are more virulent. Do they somehow interact with some other germs or pollutants to make them stronger? Well, apparently the, the key factor is their host in, in the animal kingdom. Uh -huh. They say that in cities, the disease is carried mostly by rats, right. and rats tend to harbor the more uh, virulent strain than compared with the ones in the countryside, which are normally carried by livestock animals. So that's where apparently the key difference comes in. So is this something that people in the U.S. have to worry about, or is it mostly in South America? It's apparently most developing nations, South America, Peru. Again, just interesting work does show why perhaps there's maybe the selection effect going on between the different types of mm -hmm. leptospirosis mm -hmm. bacterium. Very fascinating work published in PLOS Medicine. It's open access. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, Professor Lee Silver will join us to discuss scientific ethics. So stay tuned. to the Grok Science Show. Well, recent advances in biotechnology have the potential to improve the quality of life for many individuals, but they carry with them enormous political and ethical implications, fueled by a growing gap between science and religion. How does society address these issues posed by biotechnology? Well, joining us today on the Grok Science Show is Professor Lee Silver. Professor Silver is Professor of Molecular Biology and Public Affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. Recipient of numerous honors and author of over 200 scientific and popular articles, his new book, Challenging Nature, explores the interplay of science, religion, and politics in the battle over embryo cloning research. Professor Silver, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's good to be here. Good afternoon. Uh, well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program. I think this is an issue that people are very well aware of. Uh, biotechnology, in particular genetic manipulations like GM foods or embryo cloning. As you point out in your book, this has a very strong opposition in Western societies. I'm curious, in your impression, what is the source of this? Well, the point of my book is that many people cherish or uh, consider sacred the mother nature without even realizing it. And so there are people on the left who don't consider themselves to be particularly religious who nevertheless think that Mother Nature is something that we shouldn't be tampering with and that biotechnologists are doing bad things to crops and animals. 
Um, and the argument I was making in my book is that the people on the left who have this vision of Mother Nature being good and benevolent are similar sometimes in their fundamentalism to those on the, the religious right who are opposed to biotechnology like embryo stem cell research. The opposition, you say, then comes from both sides of the political spectrum then? It does. And I think people who are educated scientists, we understand the opposition from the right. It clearly has a Judeo-Christian foundation in the idea that God creates human beings as human souls in the embryo, and scientists shouldn't be mucking around with embryos to make stem cells. I think what people find more surprising, and even I was surprised when I realized the depth of people's notions of Mother Nature being good and unnatural or artificial being bad, um, and that's very, very prominent uh, among people on the left. Indeed, indeed. I think uh, Daniel Dennett said that we replaced a designing God with a designing Mother Nature. Exactly. And I, and I think what's happened in the West is, especially in Europe, but in America to a certain extent, educated people very often give up the Christian God. They go away from the church. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. But I think there's this natural void that opens up, and they have to replace the biblical God with some other kind of spiritual sense. And what we get in education in the United States and in Europe and in our public schools is this notion of Mother Nature being a unified organism and that we shouldn't be tampering with Mother Nature. And it's really quite fascinating that so many people believe that if it's natural, it's good, and if it's unnatural, it's bad. Right. Uh, some of the issues where this comes up, obviously, is, uh, for example, genetically modified foods. Yes, exactly. Um, it, I mean, it's interesting because in the United States and Canada, genetically modified foods are on our supermarket shelves, and over 300 million people have been eating these foods for the last 10 years, and there's not a single verified case of even a stomach ache, hmm. and yet the Europeans have opposed importation of genetically modified foods from the United States, and most Europeans in surveys think that the food's going to kill them and destroy their environments. So they have this very, very strong aversion to any kind of biotechnology. Hmm. Uh, another issue, of course, also is uh, stem cell cloning. Yes, and that has its roots in Western religion. It's the idea that the embryo is a human being that's worthy of respect. Most of the members of President Bush's Bioethics Commission have this very traditional idea that the embryo isn't sold by God and that scientists are destroying life when they use the embryo to make stem cells. From a scientific perspective, in fact, when you take an embryo and make stem cells from it, you're not killing anything. You're just growing the embryo into a bunch of cells in a Petri dish, and there are Asian scientists who see that as a way of restarting life as opposed to destroying life. That is an interesting point. In your book, you mentioned that, for example, in Asian societies, the view is somewhat different. Well, it's very different because in Western societies, we have this notion of a single creator, and this single God creates each new human being at the moment of conception, whenever that might be. Whereas in Asia, all spirits have existed from the beginning of time, and they get reincarnated as each body wears out, they jump into a new body, and they have kind of like an evolutionary process where the spirits gain karma and they become more advanced. 
And so embryos may have spirits, but you can't destroy the spirit even if you wanted to. And spirits can merge together, they can break apart. So it's a much more fluid notion of spirituality in Asia. And there's no master god that you can define. So playing god doesn't have meaning in Asia in the same way that it has meaning in Western culture. So is this perhaps a reason they've embraced the technology a lot more openly? Oh, absolutely. Because even Westerners, I mean, if Westerners are Christian, then there's this notion that God has a plan for the future, and we shouldn't be interfering with God's plan. And this comes right from the Bible. But even Westerners who have given up the Church still have this notion of there's a future plan, and human beings shouldn't be interfering with it. Mother Nature has a plan instead of God. Whereas in Asia, there is no master creator, and and each individual makes his or her own future. And so it's much, much more flexible spiritually, and people seem much more willing to accept both embryo stem cell research and genetically modified crops. So perhaps the philosophy underlying it should be more of these manipulations being, once again, maybe an extension of our nature. Yes, and I'm not saying that all forms of biotechnology are good. I'm just opposed to those who oppose all biotechnology Mm. on principle. I think that's a foolish way to think. I think that each time we modify crops, do a genetic modification, we, we have to test it to make sure that the modification does what we think it's doing. We have to make sure that it's going to be not harmful to health. And so we can look at each uh, use of biotechnology on a case-by-case basis. What I don't like is people who reject it just from the start because it's biotechnology. Mm. Uh, another issue I guess you, you mentioned is that part of the problem might be as far as how science has defined where life begins and definitions are perhaps a little bit foggy. Yes. It, again, this comes down to this Western notion of all or none human beingness. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that God creates human beings immediately, and when Christians use that word, they mean instantaneously, mm. and that everything either is a human being or is not a human being. And when you have that notion of life, then you trace back a human being like you or me, you trace us back. There's no discontinuity between us and the embryo that gave rise to us. And so people on the religious right say that's evidence that an embryo is a human being. But what they don't say is the assumption that everything has to be either a human being or not a human being. If you have a more flexible view of life developing, human life developing and evolving gradually and continuously, you don't reach that same conclusion. So is this shift in terms of our philosophy of uh, how uh, we view life, should this go hand in hand with increasing science education as far as bridging the divide between science and mainstream? Well, I think the the problem is that scientists, for the most part, are very strange people, especially (laughs) biologists. We don't understand how the rest of the world works. Mm. And when the rest of the world attacks scientists, we don't know how to respond. And so we say things like, oh, we, we respect embryos, when in fact... Scientists know very well that when they're looking at embryos under a microscope, they're, they're looking at a bunch of cells. Mm-hmm. And I think that the religious right has done a very effective job at getting scientists to, to play their game, to play the religious right game. And that doesn't do scientists any good. Mm-hmm. I really think scientists have to do a better job at understanding other people's spirituality and religion. So uh, what in your view is the direction then for uh, bridging the divide? 
Well, two directions. One is what I try to do is to explain to scientists how spiritual the rest of the world is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was shocking to me when I traveled around the world and realized the depth of spirituality. It's not spoken about very much in the United States, but in the rest of the world, people are extremely spiritual. And scientists have to understand that and the impact on the way other people look at science. And then on the other hand, scientists have to educate the non-scientific community, explain to them why biotechnology should not be disregarded out of hand. Indeed, indeed. You come from an interesting background as a molecular biologist, but I'm curious, how did you become interested in these uh, sort of broader issues regarding the ethical implications? What happened is when I wrote my first popular book 10 years ago called Mm -hmm. Remaking Eden, I was just a scientist, and I wrote as a scientist, as a rationalist, and I was shocked by the response to the book. And it became clear that we just were speaking different languages, those who are scientists and those non-scientists. And so for the last 10 years, I've been traveling around the world trying to get a better insight into the minds of non-scientists, those who are believers. And that's what led to writing this book. Well, it certainly is, I think, a, a very fascinating book, and I, I sure hope a lot of people will go and take a look at it. The book is called Challenging Nature. And Professor Silver, I do want to thank you very much for joining us on the Grox Land Show today. You're very welcome. And you were just listening to Professor Lee Silver discussing issues in biomedical ethics. You're listening to the Berkeley Gronk Science Show. Well, coming up next is the Gronkatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Grokatron 5000. It's, again, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic ethical or unethical. So for the following five items, the Grokatron would like to know whether they are ethical or not. Professor Silver, are you ready to play your game? Yes, I am. Okay, here we go. Grokatron 5000, topic number one, ethical or unethical, junk food. That's a tough question, ethical or unethical. Can I say neither? Okay. (laughs) Neutral. Neutral, all right. Okay, uh, number two, ethical or unethical, movie theater admission prices. (laughs) I would say ethical. Well, I guess they could charge whatever they want. (laughs) Right. Number three, uh, Botox injections. (laughs) I think they're silly, but I think people should be able to do it if they want. Okay. So <laughs> it's very difficult to call it ethical or not. I, uh, I'd say it's okay. Okay. <laughs> Good news for self-improvement anyway. Right. All right. Number four, speed dating. 
Well, I'm very lucky that I haven't dated in, in uh, 25 years since I've been married all this time. <laughs> so I haven't had the experience. I guess it's a good idea for modern people who want to very, very quickly try to figure out who they get along with and who they don't. So I'd say ethical. Okay, very good. All right, and uh, number five, finally, the price of gas. <laughs> oh, I think it's too low. So I would say unethical. Okay, yeah, well, it's certainly, I guess, if the cost of the environment were factored in, it should be much higher, right? Exactly. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Professor Silver, I do want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around, playing our game, and, of course, talking about your book, uh, Challenging Nature. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, and Bu was the answer to last week's question of our week. What is the pound of sum? Well, you know, I went to Panda's Express and I saw they had the juicy panda meat. And I look at the panda hand and I realized it's only an appendage. It's not the real sum. So that is the panda's thumb. Well, hello, hello. It's Jimmy Molson talking from Old Time Radio with all the gases all around. You've seen the argon. What's it doing? What's it going? And how do you compress it? What does it do? Well, if you know the answer, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but boy. But you just might get a flash from President Hoover. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.